Katie Kempner, and welcome to Perspectives. Perspectives is a series of inspiring conversations with remarkable working women, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be talking today with Joanne Lublin, the author of Power Moms and Earning It and a Pulitzer Prize winner. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Katie. Thank you for being here. I very much appreciate it. So I think we should just start by talking a little bit about why did you want to write this book? Well, I wanted to write this book because I was curious as to whether things had gotten better since the baby boomers, my generation, became the first wave of women to get into executive level roles in businesses and also have children. And that became real clear to me that that was really a change in how businesses operated when I wrote my first book, Earning It, Hard-Won Lessons from Trailblazing Women at the Top of the Business World. Because 80% or more of those 52 women were mothers. And among those who had become public company CEOs, the percentage was even higher. I devoted one chapter in that book to that topic of working motherhood. It was a chapter called Manager Moms Are Not Acrobats. That was a quote from one of those 52 women who happened to have children. She makes a repeat appearance in in Power Moms, as did about a half a dozen of those women. But what was interesting to me is looking at how things had changed, how they had gotten better, what still needed to get better, by comparing that generation, the boomer moms, with the second wave of executive women who had children and are becoming the leaders of our companies in the United States. And those are women in their 30s and early 40s. So altogether, I interviewed 86 executive mothers. And in addition to that, I talked to 25 adult daughters of the boomers to find out what was it like growing up having a high-powered mom. Why did you decide to to focus on the dynamic between working (laughs) mothers and their daughters in the book? I mean, a lot of your, some of your stories really underscore some of the tensions that arise. I personally can speak to tensions that arose in my own, with my own daughter. Why did you choose to focus on that? Well, if you're writing a book about mothers, um, obviously mothers have both daughters and sons. But if you're also trying to look at how we have evolved as a society in terms of how women are treated in the workplace and to what extent prior generations are able to not only advance their own status, but share their wisdom with the generations that come after them, it makes total sense to be doing that from the vantage point of the daughters and the mothers. And so in order to get some sense as to how women's status and the economy is changing. I, in a sense, looked another generation or half generation ahead of that younger wave because most of those daughters I was talking to were in their 20s. The other thing is that I was curious as to whether having a power mom, as much as it might mean a rocky adolescence and who didn't have a rocky adolescence with their mom when they were teenagers, to what extent has that achievement that your mom has gotten to be an executive in a company, how does that benefit you personally as an adult daughter when you enter the workforce? And and what I found out is that for many of those adult daughters, they came to view that boomer mom as their secret weapon. 
She knew exactly how to get ahead in the world. She knew exactly how to network. She had great connections, could introduce you to all the right people in all the right places. But more importantly, she was going to be there for you when you needed her, when you got turned down for that job you really wanted, when you suddenly had to act like a supervisor for the first time and didn't know how to discipline an underperformer, when you were ready to raise your hand for a promotion or throw your hat in the ring for a bigger job somewhere else. You had that built-in coach. Some of these adult daughters ended up like getting queries from their BFF saying, hey, could your mom like do the same thing for me? And I think another way in which the daughters benefited from having a power mom is that they had had blazed trails. They had had to deal with extreme forms of gender bias that frankly, you know, were shocking to those adult daughters as they came into maturity to hear what their moms had had to deal with. But their moms could tell them, here's what to look out for when that jerk, you know, happens to be a guy who doesn't really get it. Did, did it seem that those daughters went on to have bigger careers too? They're too young to say. To say. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, some of them were, were not in their, their 20s and early 30s. I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there were a handful who, who had definitely gone on to have terrific careers who were not, not that young. But for the most part, they were not trying to be mom. And I don't think any of us want to be our mothers. We all have to find our own way in the world. And frankly, at at the end of the day, I think that's the most we can do as mothers is we can instill in our children an important sense of what they ought to be valuing from a, a, a social ethics standpoint. But we should also be instilling in our daughters and sons alike the importance of going for your passion. Yeah. And it's not it's not going to be, you know, what you and I decide to do with our careers. It's going to be what what they want to. And and at the same token these many of these daughters saw how hard their mom had worked and how stressful it was to be a high-powered executive. And so in some cases they chose to be more artistic than business focused. But other than Others of them did exactly the same thing as mom in terms of staying in the same profession or the same industry or doing something really very similar, even if it was slightly different. Yeah. Well, you talk about in the book how important it is also to raise feminist sons, which is something that I hope that I've done with my son, Max. And I'd love if you could share with us what you mean by that. So how old is your son? 23. Oh, well, then if you haven't raised him right by now, then it's way too late. <laughs> I think I have. He ran over here. He's a student at Berkeley College of Music, but doing online right now. He ran over here because I have a new computer at, to make sure that I was right set up correctly before our conversation. So I think that's a good sign. <laughs> well, I, as a society, as much as things have gotten better for parents, in particular working moms, we still have to deal with entrenched gender stereotypes and pervasive unconscious bias about how women ought to behave as well as how men ought to behave when it comes to parenthood. And I think the only way we're going to be able to stare those issues in the face and recognize them as being us and fixing them 
is by raising not just feminist daughters, but raising feminist sons. And that happens if there are, you know, two parents in a household who are setting a strong example that they believe that women have to be treated fairly, equally, and that both parents are willing to be serving as role models in terms of who does what in the home. And in my own case, when I had two children, I thought that's what I was doing for both Dan and Ava, who's the younger child. And one day I realized I wasn't actually doing enough of role modeling for Dan. He was about four years old and my dad was visiting and he was giving infant Abra a bottle. And Dan got very upset. I was like, you know, like four years old. What's the matter, Dan? And he's like, well, Papa can't give the baby milk. He doesn't have breasts. And I was like, okay. And as far as Dan was concerned, um, you could only be, you know, someone who could feed a baby if you were a mother who could nurse it. And so you have to use those kind of aha moments where your children are essentially absorbing outdated stereotypes about what is possible and not possible from a parenting standpoint uh, to set them straight. And that means at a young age, you teach not just your daughters, but you teach your sons how to cook meals, how to wash their clothes, how to care for their younger siblings. And it pays so many dividends when they become parents. In my son's case, he's the father of three. When his now nine and a half year old was born, taking paternity leave was not an option. When his seven and a half year old was born, it was an option. He was the first guy in his office to ever do this. And when his now two and a half year old was born, it wasn't a big deal anymore. And that shows you the evolution just in a little under 10 years in my son's own family life. And things that are making it easier for working mothers now who, since the parents in a work sense, are getting more recognized with things like paternity leave and, you know, whatever version of family and partnership you have being able to take leave. Let's talk a little bit then um, about working mothers who are now working from home, working parents, but these power moms who now, besides running businesses and, you know, taking over these huge roles are also in a lot of cases schooling their children from home and, you know, being in charge of things in the house that they weren't in charge of, which is a huge, can really be so overwhelming for women. Do you have any, any advice for them? Oh, I have plenty of advice for them, but I also think as a society, we have to give more credit to these struggles that so many working moms are dealing with. And you read, you know, in the media time and time again, it's the fact that this is a she session because so many women have either lost jobs or left the workforce because of all these multiple demands on them as working parents. But frankly, the numbers are equally startling when you look at the mothers leaving the workforce. And so it's not a she session, it's a mom session. Yeah. And so in the, in the case of, you know, how do you work from home and co-parent and also, you know, school your children at the same time, last summer after the book was already sent to press, I reached out to a couple of the women I had interviewed for the book from that younger generation who had already been working remotely before the rest of us had to learn to do this. 
Now, in some of those cases, well, in all three of those cases, they weren't working remotely with children underfoot. So they did have to adapt, but they had already had experience with, with that kind of work arrangement. In one case, I interviewed, went back and interviewed one of these Gen X executives who was trying to start her own business, and so was her husband. So they're both first-time entrepreneurs, um, and I think he'd been working from the house, but she'd been working in a co-working space, and now everybody's back at home, uh, and they've got you know a pre-K kid and a first grader. Uh, and so you know, initially they just tried to wing it, and that that wasn't going to work. And so what their solution was, they created an Excel spreadsheet that would track their work schedules and their parental tasks every day between 7 a.m. and 8 p.m. Who's going to make lunch for the kids? Who is going to get the nighttime bath going? Who is going to do get to go on their work Zoom call? You know, who was going to sit down and do schoolwork? And they blocked out three-hour shifts for each parent. And they set this, not in stone, but in sort of clay on a Sunday. And then every night they revisited the next coming day schedule to say, you know, does it still work for you? Do you have to do something different? Uh, and, you know, it became very much, you know, a, a more workable solution. But I also think that working moms who might be listening to this podcast should not be giving themselves huge guilt trips if they do feel a need to step back at this point and, and stop working for a period of time because there's just too much else going on and there isn't any practical way to get the kids back in school full time. And, and they ought to think about the fact that you need to stay connected while you're not working. But luckily, we've got social media for that. You can remain part of all these various groups that you're already belonging to and maybe find some ways in the evenings when you've got some help from your supportive spouse or life partner to do some continuing education. And the other thing is, don't forget to maybe ask that employer that you're leaving as to whether they've got a returnship program which a number of companies put in place long before COVID to try and bring women and other individuals who had left the workforce for a sustained period of time back into the work setting through a, a year-long paid returnship at the end of which you were eligible to be permanently rehired. Those are excellent points. I, I think what especially resonates is that there, you know, if you do need to step back, for a while, because it just feels like too much. And of course, if you have the luxury to do that, you know, financially, right? Can you afford it? Can you afford it? There's absolutely no shame in that. Uh, and have for other reasons, of any of the women that you interviewed in your book, had anyone stepped back and gone back for whatever reason and been able to resume their career? There were a couple women that I interviewed who went on a part-time schedule when they became new moms. Uh, and there were also two of these executives, one from the boomer generation and one from the Gen Xer generation, who actually took sabbaticals from their employer. In the case of the baby boomer, when she proposed this sabbatical, 
her company was, her employer was willing to let her go on the sabbatical, but they also wanted her to generate revenue while she's on sabbatical. And this was an executive search firm. And I thought, well, how's that supposed to happen? You know, she's supposed to keep generating revenue, even though she's officially not working for, you know, many, many months. Um, and she chose to go on the sabbatical at the time when I believe, as I recall, her kids were entering middle school. And she knew that they very soon were going to get to an age where they wouldn't want anything to do with mom. And she didn't want to let that opportunity go out of her grasp. But she had such an established track record at this executive search firm that what happened was while she was on sabbatical, companies would come to her and want her to do executive search assignments. And she would simply refer them to other colleagues who could pick up the slack. But she would get the credit for having generated the lead. And so she easily met that requirement. In my own case, I sought a reduced work schedule after Abra was born. I wanted to, I was willing to give up a 20% of my pay in order to work a four-day week. And I was turned down uh, because at that time, both my bureau chief and his boss, the journal's managing editor, had stay-at-home wives, and it wasn't, you know, it just wasn't done. And uh, several months later, both the bureau chief and the managing editor changed, and they both were married to working wives. And in the case of Al Hunt, he was married <coughs> to a now still famous Judy Woodruff, and they already had a son. And so I was encouraged to revive that proposal. And not only did I get that four-day schedule, at the same work hours everybody else did, but they kept me at full pay for working 80%. Wow. Well, let's talk a little bit about your career. You've had such an amazing career. I mean, the Wall mm-hmm. Street Journal, winning a Pulitzer Prize and just ex- so many recognitions of your work and getting to do such interesting things while raising children. Can you just talk a little bit about that in whatever way you'd like to? Sure. Um, well, just to set the record straight, I shared the Pulitzer Prize with, with numerous colleagues. We all wrote stories having to do with corporate scandals. And uh, I remember at the little cocktail party the, that night after the awards had been announced, the managing editor raising his glass in a toast to say, thank you to all those corporate crooks out there who made this Pulitzer possible. Something to that effect. <laughs> That's so, very funny. Um, when I joined the Wall Street Journal straight out of graduate school at Stanford, I was the first woman hired as a full-time reporter in the San Francisco Bureau. There were roughly a dozen women in the news department at that time. They were all reporters. The highest ranking woman at the Wall Street Journal was a copy editor. And the journal had a very strict nepotism rule at that time. And so she fell in love with a higher ranking editor there. And they called this, at least this is the the tale that was told. I never confirmed it. But they called this couple in and said, congratulations on your engagement. As you know, we have a nepotism policy. And one of you is going to have to quit. And all eyes focused on the copy editor. When I started work at the journal and I would call up sources to try and report stories, 
I would not be taken seriously. I would get comments like, sorry, I already subscribed. <laughs> and believe it or not, nearly 47 years later, when I was getting ready to retire from the journal, I was still being mistaken for somebody selling subscriptions. So not a huge amount had changed, other than the fact there were a heck of a lot more female reporters and editors. And in fact, our deputy editor-in-chief was a woman for a couple of years. Well, one of the things that a lot of working mothers deal with, and um, your book has recently launched, and I saw you on the Today Show talking with Jenna Bush about working mother guilt, which I'm sure you dealt with at times. I know I did quite a bit. Um, what are some remedies or some things that to sort of get rid of or push to the side such a useless emotion, which even if you know it's useless <laughs> as a working mother, you probably have? Yeah, it's a very useless emotion because frankly, it turns out that everybody has guilt of one kind or another as to how good a job they're doing as a parent. And it frankly has not very much to do with whether you're working outside the home. It has to do with the fact that children are greedy and if they could have you 125% of the time, they would. And that's part of the joy, frankly, of having children because you could be completely consumed with, with having fun with your kids. But that really resonated with me when I was interviewing one of the adult daughters of one of those power moms who had chosen to be a stay-at-home mother. Now, was that a reaction to what mom had done? Anybody's guess. But in her case, she was doing, you know, exercise classes and yoga or whatever a couple times a week and leaving her then toddler with her grandmother and was racked with guilt about the time she was away from the toddler, even though she wasn't working outside the home. But one of the, I think, best chapters in the book is a chapter on ways, hacks to ditch working mother guilt. And it was suggested by that very same mom who gave the title of that chapter in the Earning It book. And she said, you really should have a chapter about ditching working mom guilt. And I said, okay, what would be the overarching theme? And she said, the overarching theme would be, you know, when you've had to work late and once again, you're not sitting down for dinner with your family until seven o'clock in the evening, you look at it as the glass half full and you say, isn't this great? I'm having dinner with my family, not what time it is. And some of the other really great hacks in that chapter, I think, are things like carving out time for yourself. There was that younger power mom who had this great arrangement with her husband under which every Sunday for two hours, she had absolutely nothing to do with their toddler. He, that was dad and little kid time. And I'm sure he, by the same token, there were, on Saturday, dad had his two hours and she could do whatever she wanted. And she felt that it made her a better executive during the week. In my case, I didn't have that like special, you know, time for myself. But one time I do remember Dan was playing with his dad. This was when we only had one child and I decided to take a bath and he suddenly noticed mom wasn't in the room and he comes pounding on the bathroom door. Mommy, mommy, what are you doing? And I said, I'm having some me time, Dan. Mommy, I want to have me time with you. But I said, go play with dad. A couple of things you can do is accept your imperfection. 
We're never, ever going to be perfect at anything we do. That's why we're called humans. And kind of just go with the flow. If it got screwed up today, it will be better tomorrow. You also ought to try and arrange weekday getaways from time to time with your kids. There's this great example in the book of Mary Hamilton at Accenture, who takes three vacation days every quarter. She does this four times a year, uses up a lot of vacation time, obviously, but she's got three kids. But each child gets a day with mommy. Oh, that's a, that's a nice one. So there's one more thing I want to make sure to ask you um, in this vein of, of advice, which is you talk in the book about work-life sway as opposed to work-life balance. And when I first started having these conversations in 2012, I can't believe it, it, it's been so long. I was very excited to talk with other working women about work-life balance and how they balanced it all. And I very quickly found that most working women hate that word because it feels like something to achieve that's unachievable. So yep. tell us a little bit about work-life sway. Well, it's a concept that was totally foreign to me, but I knew from writing that first book that work-life balance was an impossible ideal. Manager moms are not acrobats. You cannot hold that yoga pose on one foot for more than a couple seconds, minutes, if you're really, really (laughs) good. And so to the extent that we still subscribe to this ideal, we're just adding more guilt back to ourselves. So we don't want to do that. In my own case, I learned about this concept called work-life sway when I went to interview the first younger generation executive mother for this book. And she explained this to me as essentially recognizing that when we need to be 110% present for work, we will do so. But if life intervenes or interferes, we'll go with the flow and we'll be 110% focused on that. And we are essentially accepting that it is equally important to be a parent as it is to be an employee. And when we have to change hats, we'll do it. And we've certainly had to learn to do that pretty adeptly in working from home. In her own case, she's an executive at Phillips, this big auction house, and was at her office late one afternoon when a text pops up on her phone. And it's a live video from her nanny showing her son taking his first step. Didn't bother her in the least that she wasn't working for that moment. And so, you know, when we're working from home, we have to accept the fact we're not going to stop being parents simply because, you know, we have to be working at this moment. And we don't stop being workers when we are, are with our children. But this isolation and this need to have to be totally focused on doing everything all under one roof makes it very, very hard to set set boundaries. And so again, when I went back to some of those women who had worked from home or worked remotely, you know, prior to the pandemic, and I said, how do you make it work now that the kids are under the roof? Uh, One of them talked about the fact that she was paying her teenage daughter to supervise remote learning for the younger daughter to give her a couple extra hours to to devote to, to, to work. In my own life, it has meant that even though my grandchildren are far away in Minneapolis, I've been doing a lot more, you know, FaceTime and Zoom 
distant grandparenting, the eldest grandchild, the one who's nine and a half, she and I have a book club. We've read almost a dozen books together, and then we have FaceTime and we talk about it. That's fantastic. My mom's doing that with my niece, too. I think that's a wonderful idea. So it has been wonderful to talk with you, and I would love to just end by asking you if there's one piece of advice that has really helped guide you through your life and your career that you could share with us. Well, I think the biggest piece of advice I would offer people is the perspective from having been a a working mom. And that is when everything is going wrong, when you're trying to do that really important PowerPoint presentation on your laptop with one hand and you're Toddler deposits the contents of her diaper in your lap, in your other hand. You got to laugh because, frankly, life's too short if we're going to ride everything that goes wrong. That's amazing advice. Joanne, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. And something special for everyone who's listening. If you buy a hard copy of Power Moms and you send an email to joannelublin at gmail.com. It's J-O-A-N-N-L-U-B-L-I-N at gmail.com with your snail mail address. She will actually send you a book plate that you can put in your book. I have one in mine and it just makes it even more special. Thank you again. 